And open with me to Luke chapter 23. Did we just go out on the sound? No, it's just low. Can you hear me now? It's a little up one more. Okay, Luke 23. Okay, Luke 23, verses uh, 26 through 43. There you go. Okay. Now, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And we have been through the Gospel of Luke for uh, nearly, I guess, a year. Uh, George Smith would probably know how many lessons. It started December the 12th of 07. Okay. Well, we've gone about 77. And we are winding down. And we hope that you will uh, enjoy this study. Uh, today we are going to look at the execution of Jesus, and we're going to cover verses 26 through 43. And we're going to divide this into two sections for those of you who take notes. The first section, we're going to call this the March to Death, and the March to Death takes place in verses 26 through 32, and then beginning in verse 33, we're going to see the arrival at the execution place and the crucifixion. Now, in this section, we're going to meet different people who are eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, and we're going to see their various responses. And that's what I want you to note, how the different people respond to the events that are unfolding before their eyes. So that's Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. Let's start off with the march to death. Now look at verse 26. Now, as they led him away, that would be the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. As they led him away, they laid a hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. Now... Luke doesn't tell us who this man, Simon of Cyrene, is. And so, who is this Simon? And uh, what's happening here? Uh, the first thing we can tell about Simon from the text is that he is from North Africa. He is from the town that today is called Tripoli. Tripoli is ancient Cyrene. Tripoli, Libya. So, we know he's a North African. And Cyrene at that time, according to Josephus, had a very large and thriving Jewish population. So here is a Jew. We know he's a Jew because he has a Jewish name, Simon. He is a Jew from Cyrene, and most likely he is coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Now Luke mentions Cyrene two or three other times in his writings. One time is in Acts 2 where he talks about all the people who came for the Passover feast. And he mentions all the different nations and the different cities. And one of the cities is Cyrene, and there are you know, a half a million people coming for the, uh, for the Pente uh, Feast of Pentecost. And here's a similar situation where people are flooding into the city to celebrate Passover. 
Most likely this man has stayed overnight in Bethany or some surrounding area, and he's moving into the city because notice it says that he was coming from the country. So he comes out of the country, probably comes through the city gate of Jerusalem, and there they grab hold of him, the soldiers grab hold of him, and they lay on him the crossbar of Jesus, and he has to bear that cross up to the crucifixion site. So he's marching on to crucifixion. Now this leads us to uh, ask a question, is how does Luke know this man's name? Just think about that. He'll tell us there's a Roman centurion. He won't tell us the man's name. He'll mention other people. He won't mention their name, but he mentions this man's name. How does he know this man's name 40 years later after the event takes place? That's an indication that this man has become a disciple of Jesus Christ as a result of this. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, it says, And they laid on Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, the cross. Which tells us that Mark knew who Alexander and Rufus were. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul mentions Rufus at the end of uh, Romans 16. So this family evidently has become Christian. And they're well known to the church. And uh, just as Kitty told us how her ancestors came and started First Baptist Church, and she gave us their names. And if you remember, I don't know if you remember the names, you will know those names because she's now mentioned that. And here these people look back, Luke looks back on the history of early Christianity and he can pinpoint the man and even name the man who carried that cross. So it's sort of interesting. Now look at verse 27. And a great multitude of the people followed him. Uh, and women among the people who also mourned and lamented him. So now we see a second you're going to see, you see Simon, now you see people, and particularly women, and you're going to see how these people respond to Jesus. Simon responds to Jesus without a word. He responds silently. But look at these women in verse 27. It says they mourned, they wept, they lamented over him. Now, it's very interesting, if you look back at 26, it says that, they laid on Simon the crossbar that he might bear it, notice this, after Jesus. By the way, I think that's a hidden transcript. There's a sense in which Luke is, is uh, in a hidden form letting us know that Simon, by the way, is a disciple because Jesus describes a disciple as one who carries a cross and follows him. Amen. What does Simon do? Carry the cross and what? Follow Jesus. And Simon's response is he's quiet, he's silent. But the women's response is that they mourn and they wail as Jesus and Simon and the others are marching toward the execution site. Um, <clears throat> these may be just women along the way who get emotional, as you see scenes on the evening news in the Middle East when there is a bombing and you see the women, how they scream, they have their heads covered, and they mourning. They might not even know who it was that died, but they you know, go into a public demonstration of mourning. Could have been that. We don't know. But it says the people and the women especially mourn. So, these could have been the same people who just a few hours earlier 
cried, crucify, crucify, crucify. Now what are they doing for Jesus? Their sympathies are with Jesus. So it could show the fickleness of the crowd. We're just not sure. So you begin to see reactions to this event. Now we see Jesus' response. Look what Jesus says in verse 28. But Jesus, see there's a contrast. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He says, you are weeping for the wrong people. You should be weeping for yourselves. Why should they be weeping for themselves? Look at verse 29. Because, for indeed the days are coming in which they... Now who's the they? Jewish leaders. Okay? Look at this. The day is coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. When then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In other words, Jesus said, you should be mourning for yourself because there's going to come a day when judgment's going to fall. Things are going to get so bad that the Jewish leaders are going to be crying out to the mountains, fall on us. You know, we'd rather die than live and go through what we're going through. So the they, in verse 29 and 30, I believe are the leaders of the nation, and he, Jesus, is describing judgment that's going to come. When does that happen? It happens in 70 A.D. It happens when the temple's destroyed. It's happened when Rome destroys the city, and thousands of Jewish people were killed, and those that are alive are scattered. Uh, things get so bad. What do they do on Masada? What do they do on that mountain, on that hill? They just kill themselves. Things are so bad they would rather kill themselves than go through the torture and the torment and give the Romans satisfaction of putting them to death. So they say to the mountains, fall on us. This is a picture of judgment. Now look at verse 31. We have a proverb here. It's very interesting. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now there's a verse I had never read before. You ever, you ever remember reading this verse? I mean, I know I had to because I've read through Luke, but I must have read right over top of it. So look at that verse again. Verse 31. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Now what in the world is that talking about? I rack my brain. You know, I looked at some of the best commentaries. Some of them never mentioned, even mentioned the verse. They just skipped over it. I, I understood why they skipped over it. <laughs> but I, I finally came to a conclusion. And it hit me uh, in the middle of... Uh, hit me yesterday morning, early yesterday afternoon. The scene in verses 28 through 30 is a scene of judgment. We'd all agree with that, right? That they are the religious leaders, the ones that are crucifying Jesus. I think that's pretty obvious. I think the key are the terms green and dry. Green and dry. Green wood would be living wood. Dry wood would be dead wood. So we're having a discussion of wood here. Or trees or shrubs. We're in the, you know, we're in the uh, 
horticulture or whatever kind of culture that is. So what we're having is that it says if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? And I think what he's saying is through this imagery here is that it's easier. And I think this is a this is this, this would be the proverb. It's easier to burn dry wood, dead wood, than it is to burn green wood. Would you agree with that? You know how I know that? <laughs> yeah, I tried. I had a fireplace and bought a cord of wood and I bought green wood. Guess what? It doesn't, it doesn't burn. <laughs> that wood stood in that fireplace for hours. I said, this is the best wood we've ever had. Lynn said, but it's not burning. <laughs> I said, it lasts long, but it's not burning. <clears throat> now, what's, what is the message? What's this proverb trying to say? I think Jesus is saying this. If the Jewish leaders killed Jesus, when there was still opportunity for that nation to have life, if they killed Jesus when there was still a chance for them to repent, what's going to happen to them when there's no chance for the nation to repent? When they reach the point of no return, when they reach the point of judgment, what's going to happen to them when there's no hope of deliverance? Uh, so what he, Jesus is doing, he's saying, is that, hey, look what they're doing to me when uh, life is still possible for the nation uh, because of that what's going to be done to them when there's no hope for the nation. Well, what's going to be done to them is what's going to happen in verses 29 and 30. It's going to be so bad they're going to cry for the mountains to fall on them because there's no hope for escape. So I think that's the essence of what this means. And I think I've got that. I'm not sure it's the exact interpretation, but that's the essence of what that means right there. <clears throat> now look at verse 32. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And so that rounds out the death march, the march toward the execution site. Now we arrive at the execution site. Look at verse 33. This is part two. Okay, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and one on the left. Now, my Bible says Calvary. Some of your Bibles say something else. What does it say? Yeah, the skull. And that's the literal translation. Calvary is not the right translation. Uh, it is when they came to the place called the skull. They came to Skull Hill. And that was the execution site. It was a public venue. Uh, possibly the, the hill looked like a skull. We know Gordon's Calvary looks sort of like that. And that's one of the reasons it's been identified as one of the possible locations to crucifixion. So, it was not a good place. It was a place of death. Now, it just says, they crucified him in verse 33. There's no description. How many sermons have you heard on all the gory details of white for Jesus to be crucified? Scripture never gives a detail. You know, there's a couple prophecies that talk about you know, some of the, how he was beaten and things like that, but there's not really much detail what really happened on that cross. Uh, you know, Mel Gibson made it very graphic. Luke doesn't make it graphic. He just says they crucified him. You know why? Didn't have to make it graphic for the Romans. They saw it. <laughs> they knew what it was. It was gruesome, and they didn't have to describe such a scene. So they crucified. <clears throat> now Jesus' response to the crucifixion. We're always looking for responses to the events. 
from the people from Jesus. Look at Jesus' response to the crucifixion. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He asks God to forgive his opponents. And he follows his own instructions. Earlier in Luke, remember, he said, uh, pray for those who revile you and arrest you and haul you off to prison and kill you. That's what you should do. That's what Jesus does. He prays. He follows his own instructions and he prays for these people. And he's the first person to respond to the crucifixion. Okay? Now look at the other responses. Look at the end of verse 34. And they, this would be the people who crucified him, the Roman soldiers, divided his garments and cast lots. So, the rule was if you were on crucifixion duty, that was not a good detail. So we're going to give you some perks. You get the man's garments. You get the man's possessions. Whatever you can take is yours. And so these guys decided, hey, instead of splitting up, why don't we just roll the dice? Whoever wins gets it all. So that's what they do. Not knowing that they are actually filling a prophecy in Psalm 22. The prophecy of the crucifixion talks about how they divide Jesus' garments. And then verse 35 says, And the people stood looking on. So there's another group. The people stood looking on. Look, no response. They just stand there looking up. But, oh, there's a contrast. Even the rulers with them sneered. Look at that. The people just looked. I mean, you, a crucifixion was something that would grab your attention and sort of took your breath away. But the leaders, they sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen of God. Now what's happening here when they do this? Uh, the point is, the point that they're making is that Messiah is not a victim. The real Messiah is not somebody who dies on the cross. The Messiah is a victor. And that's how we know that this guy dying on the cross isn't the Messiah. Because if he was the Messiah, guess what he would do? He'd be saving him. He'd be saving himself. He would be <coughs> defeating this group of people. He wouldn't be defeated. And so it's, uh, it's a mocking. That's what they're doing. They're mocking Jesus. And then verse 36 says, And the soldiers mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Same charge. Uh, they're mocking. King of the Jews. Okay, Messiah, the king of the Jews, he can't be defeated. He defeats everybody. Ha ha ha, look at him, he's defeated. If you're the king of the Jews, you'd save yourself. He proves that he's not the king of the Jews. He's not saving himself. He's just dying there helpless. <clears throat> and it says they gave him sour wine. You don't give sour wine to a real king. You give the wine the best, wouldn't you? If the king came to your house, wouldn't you give the king the best food? You wouldn't say, well, we're having you know, hot dog today. You'd say, well, let me see what else we get. Let's go to a restaurant. 
so the fact that they give him sour wine shows that they do not believe he's the king of the Jews, and if he were, he wouldn't be hanging on the cross. Ha! If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Ha! The Jews look at him. He's hanging there, dying. Verse 38 says, And an inscription was also written over him, meaning on a placard above the cross, in letters of Greek, Latin, in Hebrew. And here's what it said. This is the king of the Jews. Notice it was lit, <clears throat> written so that Greeks could read it, Romans could read it, and Jews could read it. That's the charge against Jesus. The charge, because when they crucified a person, they executed a person, they put the charge against that person right over their head so everybody could see, unless they want to try to commit the same crime. And here's the charge. He's the Messiah, that's his claim. He's the king of the Jews. And that was to mock him because obviously he wasn't the king of the Jews because if he were the king of the Jews, <clears throat> he wouldn't be on the cross. He would defeat Rome. So that's what they're doing. They're mocking him, but it's the charge. You see, because if he, he claims to be the king of the Jews. That's their charge. He claims to be the king of the Jews. And that is a threat to the sovereignty of Rome. No one can claim to be a king without Caesar's, Caesar's approval. Caesar appoints kings. You don't appoint yourself as a king. And so he is seen, therefore, as an insurrectionist. Not as a real king of the Jews, but simply one who claims to be the king of the Jews. Now look at verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him. They, he joined in with the crucifiers. <clears throat> he joins in with his own enemies. And he blasphemes Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. Now, oftentimes when we read that, we think that that's what he's really saying. Well, if you're the Messiah, save us! But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, If you were the Messiah, you know what you would be doing? You'd be saving us. You wouldn't be dying here. So I think that he's mocking. That's why it says he blasphemed him with that. He is saying, if you were God's chosen, if you're God's Messiah, you wouldn't be hanging on a cross. You would save us and you'd save yourself. And so this is a mockery. He's not expecting Jesus to do it. This is sarcasm at its best. And uh, it's a challenge to Jesus' claim. If you were the Christ. You're the Christ. What are you doing on the cross? See, it's mocking Jesus. Now, very interestingly, is that the, the, the ironic thing is that Jesus is saving this guy. It's, this, it's through this means that Christ is going to save the world. Messiah comes, and he's not going to save the world by overthrowing the Roman government. He's going to save the world through dying and suffering. But they don't understand that. So this is a mockery. And uh, not understanding God's way, he blasphemes God, he maligns God's way of salvation. Now look at verse 40. But the other, that's the other thief, the other criminal. Answering, answering his partner. Rebuked him, saying, You do not even fear God, 
Do you not even fear God, seeing that you're under the same condemnation? <clears throat> this guy should uh, fear God. Uh, he's going to die. It's a point on the man wants to die, and then the judgment is going to face God. And so he says, you don't even fear God, even in your last minutes you're saying all these things. And if this guy's the Messiah, you're blaspheming God. And then he says, and we indeed justly, we're justly condemned. For, in other words, we have done crimes worthy of death. We've committed capital crimes. We indeed justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, death. But this man has done nothing wrong, meaning nothing wrong with death. And immediately this criminal speaks directly to Jesus. And look what he says. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, as I came to this passage, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I thought of our own V.O. Gray, that song, Lake V.O. Gray, that song that he used to sing. Remember me. Remember that song? And I thought that's, that is, you know, that, that song is kept, I've sang it all yesterday and all today as well. And not very well, by the way. <laughs> uh, but this guy says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Now notice that he embraces Jesus as the king. You see that? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says that out loud. This is a public profession of faith. Okay? He says it, declares it, just as these other people publicly declared their rejection of Jesus. This man declares his acceptance and his recognition of Jesus. He embraces Jesus as a king. Notice also in verse 42, all he asks for is remember me. Don't forget me. Remember Joseph? Pastor talked about Joseph. Been talking about Joseph for the past week. Joseph is in prison. What does he tell the guy who's ready to be released? Was it the butler, the butcher? I forget which one it was. The candlestick maker. <laughs> what did he say to the guy? When you get out, remember me. That's all this guy wants Jesus to do. Just remember me. When does he want Jesus to remember him? Look what it says in verse 42. When you come into your kingdom... It's not when you go to heaven in this case. Jews weren't thinking along those, those terms the way we think of those terms. He says, when you come into your kingdom, in the future, when you come into your kingdom, uh, don't forget me. Now when did the Jews believe the kingdom was going to come? They believed that the kingdom would come when God raised all the people from the dead. When God raised the Jews from the dead, He would establish His kingdom. And He says... Lord, when you come into your kingdom in this future resurrection, remember me. So I think he's talking about in the future resurrection, when you set up your kingdom, remember me. And we have some pretty strong historical evidence that that's what he meant. When you come into your kingdom at the resurrection, remember me. Because we've now discovered engraving on tombstones of the same century. People who have died, Jews who have died, and engraved on their tombstones are the words, 
remember me. And that was the prayer of a Jew that they would be resurrected and they would enter into the kingdom. So I think he's expecting, uh, he's asking Jesus to remember him when he goes into the kingdom, when he enters his kingdom, not when he goes to heaven. I think that's what this man's thinking at this point. Now look at this, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you today, now watch this. This verse can be interpreted in many ways, but I'm convinced in light of the context that here's what Jesus is saying. Surely I say to you today, you don't have to wait for me to remember you to the resurrection. I'll give you some assurance even today. And surely I say to you today, I'll give you assurance immediately. And here's what it is. Today I'll tell you, you will be with me in what? Paradise. And we immediately say what? Heaven. But the Jews saw the kingdom of God, this future kingdom of God on earth, as a restoration of the Garden of Eden. Paradise lost, the Garden of Eden. Paradise restored in the kingdom of God. Now, we have pretty strong evidence for this. For example, if you turn over to Revelation 2, I'll just show you one or two examples. So I think when Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise, he wasn't saying you'll be with me in heaven today. Although that may have happened, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not denying heaven. But I think Jesus is saying, I'll tell you today, you don't have to wait for me to remember you. I'll give you assurance even right now, immediately, that uh, your request will be... Guaranteed, you will be with me in the kingdom. You'll be with me in paradise. So if you look over at Revelation, what we have, and look at Revelation chapter 2, you have paradise is restored. The Garden of Eden is restored in the kingdom. And look at Revelation 2 and look down at uh, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcome, I will give to eat from what? Tree of life. Now where was the tree of life? It was in the Garden of Eden. Now look what he says. Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were put outside the garden. You remember that? Lest they do what? eat of the tree and live forever in their sin. So what God is doing is that he is restoring. The kingdom is going to be the restoration of the Garden of Eden, paradise lost. And uh, this is what he's describing as a future kingdom. I'll show you one other example. There are a lot of examples in the Old Testament where the kingdom of God on resurrection day would be like paradise. But I'll show you one more in Revelation. <clears throat> but you might want to jot down Isaiah 51 and other places like that. Look at uh, Revelation 22, for example. <clears throat> now John uh, sees this new heaven and this new earth. And here's what he describes. And he showed me a pure river of water of life and 
clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and from the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on the side of the river was what? The tree of life. See, that's the Garden of Eden restored, which bore twelve fruits. I don't think that's heaven. I think that's earth. That's the resurrection. That is the kingdom of God. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the trees of the fruit were for the healing of the nation. So what we have is when Jesus says you'll be with me in paradise, this is the scene that he's describing. He's describing the future kingdom of God. That's what the guy wanted him to remember. When he wanted him to remember, Jesus said, I'll give you the assurance right now. I won't forget you. I'll give you right now a guarantee that you'll be in there with me. And so Jesus doesn't promise. He promises that we'll go to heaven, but as we've said before, heaven's not your ultimate goal. Remember what we've talked about that, right? Heaven is an intermediate state. What's your ultimate goal? Kingdom of God on earth. New heaven and new earth. That's your ultimate goal. If you're going to Hawaii, you might have to stop in Oklahoma City. <laughs> Oklahoma City isn't your goal. That's an intermediate. That's a layover. Heaven's a layover. That's a layover. So I know we all want to go to heaven. But let me tell you, as nice as that is, you won't have a body in heaven. Not like this. You want a body? Yes, when are you going to get your body? The resurrection. It'll be a body that'll be suited for the kingdom of God. You'll be a whole person. God brings salvation and deliverance to the whole person. So that's what Jesus, I believe, is promising here. So while I believe in heaven, I don't think you'll be with me in paradise is the strongest verse to prove that. I think it deals with the kingdom of God. And just an aside, Jesus never promises us, by the way, to deliver us from death. He promises to deliver us through death, through suffering. We're going to have suffering, but guess what? Suffering's not the end. We'll die, but guess what? Death is not the end. There's a resurrection. There's a perfect healing. So, I believe that this passage introduces us to several people. I think in this passage we see Simon, who carries Jesus' cross. And he is a prototype of a disciple who is called to carry the cross and follow Jesus. We see the women whose mourning is misplaced. They're mourning for the wrong thing. They're mourning for Jesus. Shouldn't be mourning for Jesus. Death was his purpose. Hey, that's why it's called Good Friday. Not called Mourning Friday, Weeping Friday. Lament Friday. Don't weep for his death. That's the means God brings about salvation. Our, mean, our mourning should be directed toward those who are heading for judgment. That's who we should mourn over. That's whom we should weep over. And then you have the people, the masses. Just sit there, stand there looking. That's how the average person is. The masses of people are just passive onlookers like sheep that are being led to a slaughter. They don't have one opinion one way or opinion another way. They just let the leaders think for them. And the leaders, what are they doing? They're sneering and they're mocking. Okay? And that's why they're going to be judged. You have the soldiers and the leaders. And with the soldiers and the Jewish leaders, what we see is what happens when people have unlimited power and authority. 
and how they use it and how they abuse it for their own purposes. To reap their own rewards. And in the criminals, we see one who mocks in the last minutes of his life. And there will be people whose hearts, hearts, as they go into the last moments of their life, get harder and harder and harder and harder. And you think they would get softer knowing they're going to meet God. But they don't. And then the other criminal in the last moments of life suddenly sees things so clearly. And he says, remember me. These are all responses. And then there's Jesus, who in the midst of it all, <clears throat> offers forgiveness. <laughs> but forgiveness is only applied to those who accept it. He says, Father, forgive them. Well, guess what? Were the Jewish leaders forgiven? <clears throat> Were the soldiers forgiven? Who's forgiven? Only those who accept it. And in this case, in this scene, only one accepts it, and that's the thief on the cross. It is, it is received, it is applied to those who receive it and who accept it, and reorient their life and recognize that Jesus is king. And cry out, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. Now, in, I believe, the other, one of the other Gospels, and I don't know if it's John or Luke's Gospel, there will be a Roman centurion, maybe even here, I don't know. And what does he say? When Jesus takes his last breath and dies, he says, truly this was the Son of God. See, so there has to be an acceptance of that. And uh, that's where we'll pick up next week. We'll pick up with Jesus taking his last breath and dying and then burying him in the tomb. And then the following week is Easter Sunday and we'll deal with the rest of us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a word that is so real. And when we see it in the context and we understand the mind of the Jewish people and the setting, uh, it all begins to make sense. It, it, it becomes clearer each time we read the passage. And uh, we even see a passage like uh, the one that we saw today about green trees and dry trees and we're forced to look at something even new not only new but uh, forced to dig and find out what in the world is this talking about and so we thank you that your bible is alive and it speaks to us and it, it causes us to think and mold our lives into the purposes that you have for us lord help us to be positive witnesses for christ help us to make public professions of faith uh, may we be bold in the midst of uh, a world out here that's hostile toward Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.